Are you ready for another round? So welcome back to Rounds Rant and today I am joined by professional golfer Ben Taylor who is currently playing on the PJ Tour. Ben has won on the Corn Ferry Tour while also was a part of LSU's Division 1 NCA Championship winning team. So Ben, thank you very much for coming on the show. I know you've got a busy schedule, but how's life with yourself today? Yeah, no worries Richie. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, everything's good. I'm just arrived here. Last night in Moline, Illinois, uh, we're here for the John Classic, um, the John Deere Classic, I should say, and uh, just came in from Detroit. We drove down a little easier than flying, so we're uh, ready to get cracking with another week out here on the PJ Tour. Good stuff, yeah. Well, there's quite a bit to unpack when it comes to your career and where you've reached, like right now, but it's the same if I have a musician on or an actor, whatever it may be, and especially with athletes. Like, what gravitated you towards the game of golf? Was it yourself? Was it a family member? Was it watching it? Like, what got you into it in the first place? Uh, so, my dad, uh, his name is Phil Taylor. He's a PJ professional. Okay. Um, Thought he was a darts player a for a second. Of... <laughs> <laughs> he, is, he is known as Phil the Power, just not the same one. But he, um, my dad's been a member of the PJ now for 45 years, which is cool. Um, he's now uh, a master certified PJ Pro, which is pretty cool. He was awarded that about three years ago for his basically lifetime of commitment to the PGA. Um, back in the 80s, before I was born, he was the assistant pro at Sunningdale okay. uh, in Surrey, which is where I grew up. Um, shortly before I was born, he um, uh, bought a plot of land and built a public driving range and a nine hole golf course. He wanted to. Um, you know, teach newcomers to the game of golf, and basically my entire childhood was basically having my second home be a public driving range. So that was how I learned how to play. That's where I learned how to play from. And uh, I mean, I think my parents had videos of me swinging a club and falling over because I hadn't quite <laughs> learned how to walk and run yet. So um, golf's been in the in the blood since day one, and has been ever since. Now I'm 31 years of age, and that's kind of uh, what I've known to do since a very young age. Yeah, sounds like you got in early, similar to my upbringing. <laughs> my dad got a club in front of me pretty quickly. And yeah. <clears throat> you took the, the route of going to the States for college and to pursue golf, obviously, in a similar with, say, tennis players and stuff like that in the UK. They tend to go to the mm. States. And as I mentioned in the intro, you won like national championships as part of a team... I think Bryson won the individual event that year as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he did, yeah, concession. And yeah, so like when you get exposure to that and see some of the top college slash amateur players around that time and you can you can hang with them, so to speak, was that then your intention? You were like, right, I need to I didn't make this, you know, a pro dream. I need to get on the tour. Or was there like a very specific moment, whether it was a meeting or going head to head with someone that you thought, okay, I need to, I need to pursue this dream of being a pro. 
Yeah, I mean, I was I was always very, very sporty when I was younger. I played everything. I mean, anything that kept me from doing something unsport related <laughs> would encourage me to do something sporty. So I did I did everything. I even played ice hockey for four years. I mean, I, I was I was um, you know attracted to American sports from eight years of age, even playing ice hockey. So like that's how I knew that uh, there were sports out there that weren't big in where we grew up, where they were massive elsewhere. So. Um, we had um, really close uh, family friends that lived in Michigan and we used to flip-flop the summer so we would go stay with them one summer they would come and stay with us one summer because their kids were the same age as my sister and I so you know I got introduced to other sports other than just golf that were huge in the States and I always I always kind of embraced being a little different as a kid because I was the one that played golf and everyone else did all the cool sports like football and rugby and tennis and yada yada so you know, from a young age, I always had this um, interest in American sports, I guess you could say. And I would probably say post-ice hockey days, when I was kind of 13 years of age, that's when Dad was like, you've got to focus on one or two sports. You can't do all nine of them. Yeah. So that's when I had to hang up the skates, and that was kind of when golf became a priority. And that was kind of the, you know, mid-teenage years. I was a huge fan of Luke Donald, Paul Casey, guys. Uh, Lee Westwood, you know, all, all the big names in England were uh, my role models and a few of them had done that route to the States. So, you know, take someone like Luke, for example. Um, he was in the States for college. He went to Northwestern, he turned pro and he'd basically been based there ever since. You know, his wife is American, his family's all American. And um, that was when I knew I wanted to go to college. So, you know, in the recruiting years, 15, 16, 17 was when it started to become a reality. And um, I remember going on a recruiting trip with my mum and dad to Fort Lauderdale. And we went to go visit a Division Two school. It's called Nova Southeastern. And uh, there was a um, guy on the team there who's a junior. He's English. His name's Jack Bartlett. He's the one that does all the swing impersonations. <laughs> on, uh, I think I've seen media. a few of them. Yeah, yeah. Great fella. Good friend of mine. And, uh, you know, I go and visit this school, beautiful campus, brand new, not a massive school. I mean, the school had 6,000 students, which coming from England, I went to Millfield, which was one of the largest schools in the country, and it was 1,500 students. So I went to this college and thought, bloody hell, this is massive. But you compare it to other big schools where they have 30, 40, 50, 60,000 students, it was, you know, talk about a culture shock. So I went to go visit this school. I... I liked Jack, you know, we were good friends and we're playing around palm trees, beaches, shorts and bikinis and we're like thinking, I think this will be a a comfortable fit for me to start college. So uh, that was kind of the the age and the transition and the reasons why I went to Nova and then um, obviously had some success there and that's what led me to think, do you know what, if I'm going to pursue a career professionally, I need to play collegiate at the highest level. So that's when I transferred to Division One and and went to LSU from there. So that was kind of the the journey and the transition um, coming to the states. Yeah, and it's it's quite a competitive field when it comes to college. My brother currently lives in Florida, <clears throat> and he's off like plus two, plus three. But he knows a lot of the up and coming golfers, and he knows how tough it is and competitive it is. And mm. when you you make that step to eventually going on to the corn Ferry tour and for people maybe who don't know that's like kind of 
the difference between the Premier League and the Championship, the Corn Ferries, where you yeah. you get your cards or at least get the opportunity to get your card on the PGA Tour. And yeah. you've you've done that <clears throat> now a few years. You've obviously got your card now, but the Corn Ferry Tour, a lot of people say how like tough it is because the the step up or maybe the lack of step up between that and the PGA Tour, it's it's closer than many people yeah. think. But what were some of the the challenges because you've had a few years on the corn ferry before your eventual kind of promotion to the pga tour what were some of the mm. the tough parts of that where like you had to go through proper hardships i know you had success on the corn ferry but like what were say some of the unseen events that you know you had to go and overcome i mean when i when i look back at you know highest level of golf amateur wise in the uk and europe you know all the uh, big amateur events represent in england or collegiately in the States, you don't go out there and, and, you know, you're not five under through nine and on your way to shoot four low rounds in the 60s. You know, you shoot 69, you're going you're gonna to prove a point in any of these tournaments we play. And um, the biggest thing for me, you go to the Corn Ferry Tour, and admittedly, some of the venues you play is the reason why, but you go to some of these events and, you know, you can shoot 20 under par and you're not going to sniff winning the tournament. And it's like you go to college and you shoot, you shoot three, they play three round tournaments, but you shoot three sub seventy rounds, you're probably going to win. And whether you're playing a, you know, a championship level golf course or you're playing a, a golf course that is a little less demanding, like you're going to feature in the tournament. Whether you go at the corn tour, I mean, I've had, I've had weeks where I've been five, six, seven under par through two rounds and I missed the cut. And talk about a wake up call to. You know, not just amateur golf to professional, but the demand of the Corn Ferry Tour. Like that, that was the level. That's how deep the water was that you got thrown into. And um, I mean, it only helped um, helps your competitive edge, help elevate your career to the next level. Because you're thinking, like, geez, you know, a good a good round isn't good enough out here. It's got to be a really good round. And um, you know, I 2018 was my first win on the Corn Ferry Tour. I won in Colombia. I won the Colombian Open and um, I shot 15 under par. The course is super quirky, super old school, not a lot of drivers and you're playing at like 8,500 feet so the ball's going miles. Mm. I mean, literally over 200 yards it'll go 20% further so it's really hard to get it close to the hole and uh, I think that week, you know, from from our roots of playing golf where you don't shoot super low, you know, you're you're playing on natural terrain that's not gonna that could give you unfair bounces. You've got to really navigate around a golf course that's not like a true American test. That was something that was advantageous to me. So when I went out on the corn throw tour, I had to really take advantage of the weeks where you're not gonna go and shoot super low because it's not just whale driver down there as far as you can and stuff an eight iron or less in and make as many birdies as you can. So um I kind of learned that my first year out there because my first year I finished just outside the number that retains your full card. Uh, so I had to go back to final stage of Q school. I still had good corn ferry status, but not full. So I had to go back to um, final stage just to regain that. Um, and actually never forget, it's funny actually, I was, I was even par after two days of Q school and I was in like 116th position and it takes the top. 40 in ties to regain full status mm. and uh, I didn't have a low score all year and I had my best friend Mitch on the bag 
and we went and shot 62-63 to finish 17 under to finish 17th to regain my full status I'm thinking like Christ where was that score during the year when you wanted to have a good weekend and you know and um, it's funny how that works you know you have a whole year on the corn for tour and you don't shoot the scores you want and then when it really matters at Q school on a golf course that feels a bit easier than the challenges you're used to suddenly boom you go shoot those scores Um, but after that first year when I when I sort of gained some experience I I won the Columbian Open and that year I didn't even get my PJ Tour card I mean I won the fourth event of the year come the end of the season I finished 28th on the order of merit and it took 25 so you know a lot of people don't realize they think oh yeah you win out there you're on tour and you go well, no you've got to win and have a third place and make a load of cuts because that's that's how it is someone out there is going to go and win a few and get promoted and it's 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 a uh, it's like a it's like a mini tour on steroids. The yeah. store the the scores out there are like mini tour scores, but all the players are good enough to, you know, have careers out in the PJ tour. So it was a huge huge learning curve for me. Yeah, sounds sounds like us. And like this mm. season on the PJ tour, you've had like several top tens. You've had some really good showings, but like the Corn Ferry tour as well. Just to focus in on that, just a little bit more, like. Mm. nearly not so much socially or emotionally but like even like financially when you're digging that out because obviously the payments get bigger and the rewards get bigger once you get exposure on the pga tour and even with sponsorships and stuff Mm. like that but like is it a case where like you're you're all in like even like financially you're taking risks you're even maybe in the red for a few months just kind of putting investing on yourself to you know, make it big, which obviously eventually you did. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was, I I was, um, I would say, relatively fortunate. I think I deserved it. But when I turned pro, I signed with Titleist. That's who I always wanted to be with. Played 14 clubs with Titleist for almost 20 years. So I got a very small signing bonus with Titleist that kind of got me going. And I'll never forget, I turned pro, I get out there with a, Small lump of cash. I think I went over with like twenty five thousand dollars or something. And then I lease a car for the first year that cost me seven grand. You're paying seven hundred and fifty bucks a month to rent somewhere to live. And then you go and play these events, and you're you know you're spending five hundred dollars on a flight to get there. Your caddy for the week for minimal is twelve hundred dollars out there on the corn ferry tour. And you got your expenses for the week, and you got to fly yourself to the next one. And I'm thinking like, crash. You know, I've got not a lot to my name and I'm making the cut and making $2,000 but then the weeks cost me three and um, that was interesting because my whole first year on tour you know you, you first turn pro you first like actually managing your own bank account and you see $20,000 and you're like oh man rich <laughs> this is way more than I'm used to but then you <laughs> you look back at it now and you go geez if only I knew how quickly that would have run out um, you're literally just gambling with what little asset you have and you just have to keep going until you either can can you know let the snowball effect keep going and you go and play more events or until you run out and um you know I was fortunate that I had a little bit of a head start like that because you know some guys sign for millions they sign for hundreds of thousands and they they have no idea what it's like to think well I'm gonna go and play for six months and once I run out I'm done yeah and um you know the corn fray tour one of the best things about the corn fray tour is I've met so many friends for life where they took me in, they let me stay at their houses, they would, you know, 
use their miles to fly to the next event or you know they treat you like family and I got married three months ago and it was cool for me to have a lot of the host families that looked after me on the corn ferry tour all like meet each other they were sitting at the same table and they all got to share silly stories of the shenanigans that I was up to the week I was staying at their homes yeah. and they all got to like um, get to know each other which was really cool um, it's obviously not the same as out on the PGA tour but um, you know you've you got to do what you've got to do you're ducking and diving all the time at least at the start and you're very grateful for those that kind of help you along the way so um, yeah it was a it was a it was an independence builder playing the corn ferry tour that's for sure absolutely sounds a bit like one or two of the musicians I've had on when they were stuck in the van at an early age yeah. before the planes mm-hmm. and private jets came in when success came in so it's it's, it's 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 understood and with the the pj tour this year ben you like in your first what eight starts you made seven cuts you had like multiple top fives and some big events but like what i suppose like it might not sound like it was a big adjustment considering those you know initial success for you there but like the pj tour whether it's course related whether it's maybe even media commitments made even if it's you know, having to play with major championships on a Thursday, championship winners on a Thursday. Like, what were some of the, if you want to be that aggressive with the terminology, like culture shocks from going from the Corn Ferry Tour to the PGA Tour? Like, what were some of the stuff that kind of caught you off guard or maybe just even surprised you as you played? So, um, that gets that makes me think of 2019 when I first got my PGA Tour card. And then you go out in the fall, you get no break, you get like one week off after the corn fray season, and then boom, you start the wraparound season in the fall. And I'll never forget going out there. And you go on the driving range, and at the corn fray tour events, you would have the Titleist trailer, Callaway, TaylorMade, Trickshon, you'd have all the uh, reps for each brand. So on the range, you would have the, the players, the caddies, a couple of coaches where players are lucky enough to bring them, and there might be 10 reps total. And uh, it seems busy. You get out to a corn ferry event, and when you haven't been on that tour before, it feels like a big deal, and it feels busy. Well, then you go to the PJ tour, and you go to the range, and there's probably a hundred reps because there's twice the faculty from each company. There's even more companies out there: grip companies, putter companies, clothing companies. I mean, and then you got all the agents. So you go out there, and the distractions, and the number of bodies that are in your way to get what you want doing at each event times by 10 and it was very easy to get sucked into that because everybody wants to meet the new rookie they want to befriend them they want to schmooze them up in case they get a hot start suddenly they might be able to be associated with them and you know I would like to describe myself as pretty middle of the road in terms of personality I'm always going to be smiley say hello to people meet friends um, do the right thing but it's very easy on the PJ Tour to get sucked into all of the nonsense that isn't going to make you play any yeah. better. But you're just embracing what that level of golf has to offer, which is basically all the freebies, all the all the entourage, all the interactions. And I mean, it's tough enough as it is. You go out on the putting green, and if you don't make a point to, you know, own a hole on the putting green and set up whatever drills you want or whatever stations you need to knock out the reps you want to feel comfortable for the week, there will be a player with a caddy and a coach and a trainer and a 
mentor and a friend and a dad and an agent that will just get in your way. And it's it's a funny old it's a funny old environment the PGA Tour because that is just normal every single week. And then you go to the elevated events, the majors, and it's ten times worse than that. So it's uh, it's a different game, and you got you got to own your you've got to own your intentions out there, otherwise all the distractions can just own you, in my opinion. And I was a little unlucky, slash, you know, maybe a bit fortunate, because when I first got my card, was year one of the two COVID years, where we had like a repeat season. And it was, I mean, it was super tough for me, because obviously being in the rookie category, I only, you should get at least 25 tournaments out of the 40. And I got 18 my first year, because we had that three-month break. And that was even after a decent start. And then the repeat year came, and even though I had a full year without a three-month break, I only got into like 17 events the second year. So um, it was nice to have two years, which was an experience builder, but each season I didn't have enough events. Unless I won one, which was unlikely in that position, I was never going to keep my card. So that's when I had to go back to the Corn Ferry Tour and regain it. But I look back and think, that was good experience to at least be chasing the eight ball and just be the rookie that no one cares about for two straight years and basically never have any, uh, you know, never have any uh, anything go your way was what actually really helped me get to the next level. So um, it's a uh, it's a it's a different uh, it's a different environment. I, I have a lot of people go, oh, you. You know, they think back in the European tour days when all the boys travel to Spain together and they're going have do nice dinners together, have some banter, joke around, prank each other, and that stuff is is I think still very common on the DP World Tour because I, I know guys out there and that's how they they seem to act with one another. But the PJ Tour is totally different. You go and play a dining. If there's a free table, that's where someone would go and eat. They're not going to go sit with someone and socialise because they're probably on their airpods facetiming their family or their agent and it's quite a it's a very anti-social environment i can't be honest so you learn that pretty quick and you 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 accept that's what it's like that's the nature of the tour and you just crack on with it i mean it's not gonna you're not gonna change it anytime soon so um you know that was a that was probably you know as you described a big culture shock and that was one thing you had to get your head around pretty quick and and just kind of get on with it. Yeah, and it is it is something that's we sometimes do forget. It is a very individual sport. I know you've got your caddies and coaches and whatnot, but ultimately mm. it's you swinging the ball and you trying to hit hit it to where you yeah. anticipate. But with all that said, and maybe some of the coldness that you experience, whether it's in the practice areas or in the restaurants and these clubhouses, was there an a moment at all during a round or even a practice round where you get exposure to play with some of the best players in the world like regularly was there times like when you first got on the tour that whether it was a certain player or maybe even a player reached out to you and said here listen this technique for practice or this course management technique blah 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 did you take any of that in or were you kind of like backing yourself to do it your way um, no, for sure. I mean, obviously, um, I've kind of only listed all the negative things about the tour, but I've I've been very fortunate. Um, I uh, have the same coach as Keegan Bradley, Darren May. He's English. 
and uh, Keegan's been like a um, he's kind of taken me under his wing a little bit any events we have together we'll play with each other um, so he's been awesome I mean I get to um, communicate with him regularly you know he's always uh, responds to me he's always there for me if I have any questions same as Brendan Steele I met Steely through Keegan and you know talk about um, the ideal ambassador to the PGA Tour Brendan Steele was as clean as they come and um, you know I think it's no surprise that he's had some success recently and you know guys like that you go play practice rounds with and you suddenly start to feel like you've got some mates out there you've got people that have your best interest at heart because you know they're the ones that will text you when you have a couple bad weeks and they try and pick you up and they're not just part of the gang that will call you or text you when you had a top five and they want to you know maybe embrace the celebration with you but um, them two boys have been awesome I've gotten to know uh, Luke Donald pretty well over this season and uh, I've got a funny story about him actually so please share I, uh, <laughs> I was at uh, I was at the USPGA this year first first USPGA first major as a pro and uh, gotten to know him pretty well obviously I've known him now for seven years or so this year I think finally been able to sort of start a bit of a friendship and I was struggling a little bit with my pitching. Super wet out there. It was, you know, kind of hard to perfect the strike. So I thought to myself, I was like, he was on the chipping green with me. It was just me and him. And I thought, he won't mind. I'm just going to go and ask him, pick his brains for five minutes. So I asked him a little little question on just how to help with my strike. So he, he totally takes five minutes out of his practice, has a little look, gives me some help. Um, you know, super nice of him. So I'm thinking, oh, that's nice, you know, get a little tip, something that, you know, the same thing I'm working on, we just hear it from a different perspective. Yeah. And when you hear it from the guy that has the best short game in the world, you're going to listen and you're going to believe that that's going to help you. So uh, I'm like, oh, thanks, Luke. He goes, yeah, no problem. He walks behind me and goes in the bunker and starts hitting bunker shots. And there's probably like 50 people around the chipping green and there's a bunch more all by the autograph tunnel on the other side of the chipping green. And the very first bunker shot, he completely sculls it and <laughs> flies it over the green like 50 yards, shouts for the ball hits the railing and then hits the spectator. And we're all laughing because I'm like, I just got some help from the guy, <laughs> the best short game in the world, who then knifes it out of the bunker. And as this and as it hits this guy, not very hard, he turns around and Luke just points at me and he's in the bunker. <laughs> and of course, this fan isn't going to think that it was Luke. And I'm like, you bastard, they're so going to think that was me now, aren't they? And uh, I thought that was quite cool. It's funny how, um, you know, Luke's obviously got a lot of responsibilities this year being Ryder Cup captain, and I, and I wish him all the best. And he's obviously had a very, very busy year because he's had to play a lot more than I'm sure he has done in the last couple of years. So uh, for him to take five minutes out of his practice to help me and then we have a bit of a laugh out of it was uh, was a cool moment. And it's, it's situations like that where, you know, it can be a lonely um it can be a lonely industry to be in, but you have moments like that that make it all worth it. Mm. You have weeks which are successful. You have weeks where you learn a lot. You have weeks that are really good. You have weeks where, you know, your family can make it. My wife flies in on Friday this week. I've not seen her for three weeks. Um, and she's going to fly with me to Scotland. So, you know, you have, you have weeks where it certainly makes it a lot more worth it. And you have weeks that make you appreciate how lucky you are and, you know, I've worked my whole life to be here, so bad weeks aren't going to bring me down. I may complain about it, but it's not going to stop me doing what I want to do. 
and uh, little moments like that just made me laugh because you think you know I, when I was a kid and I didn't know Luke I would never have thought I would have had a situation like that on the chipping green at a major championship and just laughed when he blamed me for hitting a fan out of the bunker but that's that's what professional golf brings you and it's situations like that where you can actually um, be very grateful of what we get to do for a living put it that way yeah oh, I can see that he's he's got a yeah. reputation to uphold and can't be seen oh. as the leader of the European yeah. team shanking balls into crowds right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah. so I get it but with say <clears throat> yourself you were saying there just even about tips and practice like yourself whether it's what your coach tells you to do or what it's what you want to do or the caddy or whatever it may be like how do you approach reviewing your performance because as you've said there like you've had a, a mixed season you've had a great start to us like third places fourth fifth places and then there's been missed cuts so you've got a taste of the good weeks and bad weeks like how do you review your performances because you're just outside say the top 100 players in the world at the moment do you are you stats driven where it's like all about strokes gained greens and regulation or like how do you review yourself as a golfer after the good and bad weeks to hopefully improve um that's a good question actually i i do look at the strokes gained and the stats um quite a lot a lot of it is situational so like you know the travelers i missed the cut two weeks ago but i was number one strokes gained putting so someone's gonna go oh wow you know you're 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 the best putter on tour this week and i'm thinking well i know i am one of the top 10 best putters on tour but when you're missing a lot of greens and you're not hitting it very close like in in regulation and you're holding a lot of par putts like you're going to you're going to be stroke gain the best putter because it goes off of how many putts you hold per green regulation so when you're not hitting very many green regulations like you're going to be better than everyone else so stats yes i look at but they're always skewed if if you're number 1 if you're number 1 strokes gain t to green you're not going to be number one putting strokes gained. It's impossible. I mean, it's not impossible, but if you were, you'd win the tournament by 15 yeah. shots. So, like, I do. I take it with a pinch of salt because a lot of it's very situational. Um, recently, I've I've tried to kind of shift my mindset with that because um, it's easy to judge your performance and, and review the results you've had just on uh, where you finish in the tournament. And, you know, listen, I'm... It's no, um, it's no, it's it's a, obviously a reality. I've accepted that the last couple of months hasn't hasn't gone very good, but it doesn't mean I'm not playing very well. There's just a few things that need tweaking, and then we should be up and running again. And um, I've tried to um, a, approach my um, evaluation lately on just how I feel my game is, and not judging it on statistically or where I'm finishing in the tournament. So, you know, to answer your question, like right now, I feel like I'm starting to swing it a little better I'm focusing on a few things that uh, takes away worrying about the technical stuff too much and I'm just trying to um, improve certain areas of my game little by little every day um, and let the performance in the tournaments just start to improve on their own because it's it's very easy to dig yourself a grave quickly and you have two or three missed cuts in a row and then you start you start questioning why you're missing cuts and it's like well you could have made three cuts in a row on the number and put yourself in a false um, mindset of thinking that you're playing good and actually you're not. You've just mm. made three cuts in a row as opposed to missed three cuts. You could be playing exactly the same. 
So um, I've tried to, you know, maybe take a little bit easier on myself is a better way of describing it when you have a few weeks where you're not quite um, posting the scores you want to because golf's an interesting sport. You could miss six cuts in a row and then you can go and win. Yeah. Or you could win and you could go and miss 60 cuts in a row. I mean, it's it's you never know what's around the corner. And I think when you have an open mindset like that, I think that's when you know it's a little bit more bearable when you have a few weeks in a row of missing cuts so um that's how i kind of i look at it i try not to get too too wrapped up in all the um all the information out there all the data i just think it's it's easy to get worked up about it um i just try to put a lid on it when you have a bad week and just move on to the next one yeah a lot's been made recently about you know the the ebbs and flows <clears throat> of form and I think there last weekend you saw with where the weekend just gone Ricky Fowler finally getting back into the winning circle where he's been playing great recently and he just changed coach back to Butch Harmon who's his previous coach but with yourself do you have a, a big team do you have one coach no coach like how does that work with you and then also like as you kind of alluded to there if you're having a bad week do you want your coach to have the solution to the problem or is it more just a a mental thing because that's what Butch Harmon said about like Ricky he was just like to be honest it was just like less is more with Ricky get back to basics yeah. like what's your kind yeah. of coach player relationship or if you do have one uh, at all yeah I mean I've um I've I work with Darren May who's my primary coach I also get a lot of help from my best friend Mitch Farah um, Mitch has been my best mate for 15 years. He coaches up in uh, Columbus, Ohio. And they're both English, which I like. Um, they both know um, what helps me as a player. Like, I'm not a, when you play bad, go and reconstruct your golf swing. Both of them, similarly to Butch, would know not to be too hard on yourself. It's not It's not um, something that needs fixing instantly with you know some technical improvements it'll just be having to tighten the screws maybe shift how you're thinking about things because you know you look at someone like Ricky Fowler and people have criticized him about being in a slump not playing good is this the end of his career like all this nonsense yet the guy has been top 50 in the world the whole time everybody's said those yeah. things and it's like he is that close to winning a tournament and probably getting in the Ryder Cup team and you just laugh at some of the criticisms and you know, I put myself in a similar situation. I mean, obviously, I've had some success this season. All came in the first third, and now we're going through a ten- transition of trying to create those uh, results again. And I think when I talk about it with my team, um, we all we all know that it's it's mostly between your ears. You know that the swing you've got isn't going to change week to week. You need a couple of weeks in the off season to make changes like that. So going from tournament to tournament, a lot of it is just very situational and playing with what you got and just trying to produce the best results and know that you, you can do it with what you got. So um, for sure, I would agree with that totally. A lot of it is, um, you know, the attitude you have towards it, I think, can create results uh, a lot more powerfully than it can be working on technical stuff. So, um, yeah, that, that's a huge part of it. And I think I think maybe Ricky... Um, you know, reiterating on the things that you know he had that gave him success in the past is just been no surprise why he's gone and 
gone and had his first win in four years or whatever it was. I mean, that's cool to see because it's that's what's that's the beauty of golf is you know that is a very powerful skill to have and it just goes to show that whether you're someone trying to keep their card, someone that's having the best year they've had so far, or somebody that's a multiple uh, PGA Tour winner, you know that skill to have is obviously very similar. So. Um, all credit to him that was that was cool to see yeah big fan of Ricky's to be fair albeit I had mm. a few close calls in majors and Paddy Power ended up winning but yeah hopefully yeah. hopefully maybe in the British Open <laughs> or something he can repay the faith but yeah that's it with regards then just to I haven't asked about it but the caddy player relationship is obviously yeah. huge and I think ever since maybe Steve Williams and Tiger became this nearly duo as opposed to just the one player became that team element yeah. like how important is the role in the modern day golfer of the caddy like as in are they pretty much your coach to reset you after a bad shot do you like personally speaking do you like a caddy who's quite aggressive who says no it's a seven not an eight iron like how do you how do you find that relationship between like you and your caddy and also from what you see on others on tour? Like how vital is it? Sure, I mean it's funny because you know I spend more time with my caddy than I do with my wife. <laughs> I mean we play thirty events a year and we're on the golf course. I don't know. We're out there from anywhere from five to eight hours a day, six or seven days a week. So like you know you're with that person a long, long time, and I'm a player that. You know, if I had a if I had a caddy that was adamant on telling me what clubs to hit, and you know, uh, being quite stubborn, that won't work for me. I'm I'm very accountable for my own actions. I like to evaluate things myself and talk them through a caddy like they would be a teammate. Um, that's where I've had my success in the past. Um, my caddy's name's Robert Peeler, so I call him Peeler. Um, super great guy. He's very mellow. He's um, few years older than I am so he kind of is very level headed like what you see is what you get he's never going to walk any quicker or any slower whether you're leading a tournament or missing the cut by 10 he's just nothing phases him he's he's as cool as a cucumber for the most part and uh, he's been on my bag since last year in uh, April or March I think so we've you know done almost a year and a half together now and uh it's an interesting dynamic because you you have to understand what works for you because there are some players out there that need a caddy that will literally tell them what to do every single hole and that's just what makes them work and then you have others that literally want a caddy that will solely carry the bag and just like a human sponge will just soak in all the criticism yeah. that comes their way and that's what that's what makes the player tick and um, it's interesting because you unless you have unless you play enough to gain the experience and learn what's what's right for you you don't know I mean unless you just completely luck out and have a caddy from the start that just ticks all the boxes for you um, so it's a very interesting um, it's a very interesting partnership because it, they come in all different shapes and sizes and they're all completely different to one another and you just got to you know learn what, what works for you so um, that's what seems to work for me I've got a lot of respect for Peeler he's caddied for 10 years kind of 50-50 between the Corn Ferry and the PGA Tour and uh, you know we've had a lot of success together and we've also had a had a lot of terrible weeks too we kind of just soak it in together 
move on to the next one, which is sort of what we're doing now. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. It's, 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 it's refreshing when you have somebody that's there for you every single week when they're obviously caddies nowadays are paid well, you know, this, this, um, this, uh, caddy life of living penny to penny and slumming it and not being fed. I mean, that doesn't exist anymore. Caddies get great buffet breakfast and lunch. They're paid well enough to pay for their flights, their cars, their accommodation, and they're going to, they're going to be in the plus every week if you miss the cut. So obviously their percentages is where they make all their money. And, um, it's refreshing when you have a run of weeks where you're not doing very well and you're not rewarding your caddy with the big paydays and they're sticking by you and believing that that's just around the corner. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. I've, I've never thought I would have, you know, a friend that's also a full-time employee that's not, it's not a, you know, it's not a, con- you're not employing them by contract. It's just a handshake deal and you honour what you commit to and, yeah, you know, I've been lucky to have Peeler that's been very loyal to me, and I don't even need to speak to him. I know that when I get there on Monday morning, he'll be there. Um, so it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting partnership. Yeah. It's funny how it works sometimes, but yeah, it is. caddy player yeah. in golf. It's not like any other sport, that's for sure. Yeah, true. And also, just when I was having you on the amateurs and bandits like myself being the eight handicapper that I am they flooded a lot of questions about the typical uh, questions that would come towards a pro but you as I said you've been surrounded by some of the best golfers you've ever seen probably some of the worst maybe some who think they're class but they're absolutely terrible like when it comes to the social golfers say even like five or ten handicappers some mm-hmm. people say distance is the key. Some people say it's short game. Some say it's practice and how they actually practice at the range. Like if you had a tip, and I know it's quite hard because one size definitely does not fit all on the golf course, but like traditionally or typically, what do you see that maybe amateurs and lowish handicappers, what mistakes are they making, whether it's on the course or in their practice? Uh, two things. And it's going to shock you. The first thing is, none of those guys ever, ever practice their short games as much as they should do. So they might hit the ball good one day, and then they putt and chip terribly, so they don't shoot the score they want. And I'm always like, well, when do you practice your short game? Well, I'll hit balls for an hour, and then I'll just hit three putts and go at the first tee. And I'm like, well, so now you wonder why your bunker plays rubbish, or you duff chips, or you can't get up and down when you miss a green on the right side of the pin. And no one ever practices their short game because it's not as fun as in balls on the range. And I'm like, short game isn't like a getting a swing lesson where there's something that, you know, is what you need to do and you just work on it continually week after week. Short game is 90% skill and feel and you only learn that through practicing. So I'm like, no one ever practices their short game and then they wonder why it's not any good or when they're playing badly, it doesn't help them or when they're playing good, that's the part that lets them down. And I tell you what, it sounds crazy, but all amateurs, whether they are 5 handicap or 25 handicap, the amount of times I see them, and I'm always off the tips, right? I'm always playing on the back yeah. tee. So when I play pro-ams, I'm walking towards their tee. So I'm always watching them from behind because I'm always wa- walking down the tee box and they're teeing off. No one, I would say 80% of all amateurs I play with are never aiming 
in the right direction. And I always say to them, like, they'll be aiming way right and they'll have a big carving, slicey swing. And they they have a big carving, slicey swing because they're aiming right and they're trying to compensate. And then they're always like, God, I just, I came over the top <laughs> or it went right. And I'm like, have you ever seen where you're aiming the ball? No. Like, how do you do that? And I'm like, well, you just lay down a club or a stick when you're on the range, which doesn't take any effort or any skill whatsoever. You literally just put it on the ground. And if you do that every day when you warm up or even once a week, you're going to train yourself so that you you know your perception and where you think you're aiming and where you actually are. And every, no one ever goes, oh, yeah, I, I just assume that I have this this skill where I can just aim at the target like I think I am. And I'm like, well, you never are aiming in the right direction. I said, golf is a hard enough sport. We're hitting a round ball with a flat face. So if you're not aiming in the right direction, it's just sheer luck if you hit it in the direction that you're intended to hit it in. So literally, literally nobody aims in the right direction. And I'll tell you what I think it is in the States. In England, the amount of driving ranges are square mats. We have mats and we don't have grass. So mats are square. Some of them have the fancy crosses on them. Some of them don't. Some of them do, whatever. But the, the mat is square. So human nature, you're going to stand on a square mat and you're going to see the direction it's pointing and you're going to start hitting balls in the direction that the mat's pointing. Well, in America, the grass is so good. You're always hitting off of grass ranges and you're in a bay that doesn't have anything that's giving you an indication of where that bay is set up to go. Mm. So everybody, people don't realise this. And I'm like... You could probably shave a few points off your score, a few shots, if you actually aim, or at least know where you're aiming. And it baffles me. And I've said this, everyone always is shocked when I say this. And I'm like, well, imagine if Roger Federer was playing at Wimbledon, and rather than facing his opposition, which is the direction he's hitting it, he stands sideways. He's probably not going to get a rally going if he's not aiming in the right direction. I'm like, golf is the same. I ain't going to hit it towards the pin if you're aiming in the trees. Yeah. And, uh, mate, it baffles me. And every time I say, do you ever like put something down to help you aim in the right direction? They go, no. Well, it's easy. Just stand here and you're hitting that way. And I'm like, well, yes, but it's a game of inches here. So we need to aim in the right direction. And, um, it, it, oh, mate, it's shocking. I would love to just video what my eyesight looks like when I watch four amateurs tee off from behind. And you just see where they're aiming and you just know where it's going. Yeah. And um, I'm like, I say golf's hard enough, let alone when you're not aiming in the direction that you intend to hit the ball. Yeah, true. So, you know, that honestly, as dumb as it sounds, mate, that I'm telling you, that is the biggest thing I see. Well, that's <laughs> a fair point. As a guy who used to aim 30 yards left to compensate my slice, I, I know all too well of the trials and tribulations yeah. of an amateur bandit. What's your luck? Yeah, yeah. You're fixing a wrong with a wrong. It's like if you aim straight... You you're not going to slice it it's going to go way too far right then you're going to start realising how to square that face Yeah, and it's I'm telling you mate it's, it's so funny Yeah, <laughs> I mean I thought I aimed wrong sometimes and then you see that and you go bloody hell yeah. help them <laughs> yeah it, it increases your morale as a pro golfer I'd imagine and yeah yeah, yeah so just listen with I know obviously we're tied on time here Ben so just one of the last things I wanted to ask you before I just mm -hmm. fire off a few quick fire and then you can go get some practice in with yourself now as I said you're just outside the top 100 in the world uh, like 
do you have a particular goal like do you do short-term goals is it just week to week like i know say the british open is around the corner some people are over qualifying while you're here doing the john deere like do you have short-term mid-term goals or are you just kind of a happy go lucky if i play well great if i don't i don't or is there core goals that you want to achieve i i um what i like to do is i like to um I wouldn't necessarily call them goals. I, I set myself small objectives that are very achievable, which are things I can control that would you know, contribute towards a long-term goal, which for me is top 50 in the world. So you know, that to me is my long-term goal. I'm going to achieve that from uh, a handful of objectives that I have that I've come up between uh, me and my coaches. Um, that, you know, I, I like to do things that you can control. I mean... I learned from a young age, if you set a goal that's that's more of a dream and you don't achieve it every year because you don't know the things you need to do to achieve it, it can be quite degrading. So, um, you know, I like to keep myself in the present, just do the things, the objectives I can achieve that will help me get to my long-term goal, which is top 50 in the world. So um, I'd obviously love to be in the Open in a couple of weeks. I've done one before, which was at St Andrews. I qualified as an amateur back in 2015 so um i can't remember what exactly the criteria is for me in my category but hopefully a good couple of weeks would take care of that which would be really cool uh, my dad's from southport originally so being able to play at um Hoy lake would be would be cool to be back near his roots so uh that obviously is a short-term ambition and hopefully we can have a good couple of weeks here and, and try and achieve that would be would be really nice okay so watch that space and yeah so listen ben what i normally do is just ask a few questions quick fire shoot off yeah the first thing you can do you can think of so yeah. first one i had here was favorite golf course in the world it's a tough question that is yeah there's a lot i there is a lot that is a tough one I, I think it would still be. Uh, it's a golf course in France. It's called Les Bord. Um My dad used to be a member when I was a kid, and it's uh, just heaven on earth. We used to drive there um, from England. It would take us like six hours and spend the long weekends there. Um, it's just it's golfers heaven in France. It's called Les Bord. Okay. If you could make a perfect golfer consisting of putting, chipping, iron play, driving, and mentality, what players would you pick? Keegan Bradley driving, iron play. Not sure who I pick for iron play. That's a toughie. Short game, Luke Donald. Putting, I would say Jordan Speef. Long putting. Speef putting, Luke Donald short game, iron play. I'd hold myself up there with their own and driving Keegan for sure. And their mentality? Mentality. Tiger Woods. Yeah. Hands down. Can't really debate that. Uh, no, that's an obvious one. The strangest thing you've ever seen on a golf course? Strangest thing on a golf course? Christ, there's so many I can't even remember. God, that's a good question, mate. No. You put me on the spot. Strangest thing on the golf course? Mine was seeing two 14-foot alligators in Stream Song sitting on a par three green. That's Stream Song? Yeah, which uh, kind of shook Dream me as an Irish man, to be honest. 
yeah, yeah. Two years in Louisiana and all that feels yeah. like. Christ, strangest thing on the golf course. Uh, actually, I've got a funny story about this. It's a little unorthodox. My mate Mitch, when we lived at Champions Gate, which is in Orlando, I lived there before I moved down to Jupiter, uh, we know, knew all the staff there. So um, we were playing around the golf just with our mates having fun. And the beverage cart girl comes up. So Mitchie decides to take the beverage cart for a spin. He just goes, drives it down the hole, brings it back. Well, he's driving back towards us, and as he gets up the hill and he's driving the car on an angle, the front wheel hits the side of the car path and he flips the flips the beverage cart. <laughs> <laughs> he flips it on its side. All the booze goes everywhere. He's probably cost himself $500 worth of booze. And he had to go and fix the golf cart and apologise to the club. <laughs> I would never thought I'd see someone flip a beverage cart on the golf course, but there you go. I've seen that. That's probably the strangest thing I've seen. There we go. And second last thing, what is the worst? Cleaning the dishes, hoovering the house, or changing the bed sheets? Uh, bed sheets. Yeah. Pain in the ass. That's that's the, the top one. Most people go for the bed sheets. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah that's miserable. Yeah take hoovering over that any day exactly the non-talent is where we're at and yeah. yeah so last thing ben if you could ask yourself a question that i haven't asked you today what would it be <sighs> my last guest said golf what's for golf dinner <laughs> so it could be non-golf related it can be anything yeah i'll tell you what i was surprised you didn't ask uh if i had any superstitions and what they were everybody always ask if you've got any superstitions I used to not anymore but I was surprised you didn't ask if there's any superstitions that would have been one that wouldn't have surprised me well what was your old superstition then before you got rid of it I used to I used to always put nine T's in my pocket okay only ever nine T's I walked to the first T and count which I only had nine T's in my pocket I don't quite do that anymore because I used to it got to the point where I break so many I kept having to grab another nine <laughs> you know with a few holes to go but yeah if I had any superstitions would have been a question Okay. I would have thought, would have asked that you didn't. Super stuff. Well, listen, Ben, that that wraps it yeah. up. I know you've got a busy week, so I wish you all the best in the in the coming weeks right. because the the PJ door does not stop. And yeah, thanks for yeah. being so kind with your time. And yeah, listen, I wish you all the best in you know the coming events, and hope to see you climb up those those ranking uh, leaderboards. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah, that's the plan, mate. Richie, thanks so much for having me on the show, mate. All the best, and uh, we'll chat to you soon. Thanks a lot, Ben.